Welcome back to the Terribly Vexed Podcast. I'm Justin. I'm Josh. Folks, we got a doozy for you this episode. An interview. With a real person, not Our, just a buddy of ours. A second interview with a real professional, an expert yeah. in their field, which I'm excited about. Yeah, and this, Josh, I'm giving you all the credit for this one. You reached out, you made all this happen. That's true. You forced me to do it. <laughs> you want to kind of talk about that a little bit for just a yeah. second? Yeah, I'd love to. I How this all came about. You said, let's check out this book. I'm going to send him a request, see if he'll be interested in doing an interview. I said, yeah, sure, thinking. Not expecting him to respond within 24 hours. I didn't think he'd give us the time of day, to be honest. I figured I he would like listen to us, and then he'd be like, ah, I'm not going to do that. You know, because uh, this is a little podcast still. We're not a large podcast. Yeah. So uh, just randomly sending out a, an email, finding his contact information on his website, and just checking to see. Because we've done this before, a couple of different places that we won't mention now. Because <laughs> I was about to. Okay, go ahead. I, I did send a message to a celebrity. Perhaps you've heard of him. Dan Aykroyd. No, res- I, see, no response. But with that, I had zero expectation of a response and that's what i got and uh had you gotten a response from him you would have been nervous i wouldn't have responded back probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, that would be a nerve-wracking one extra nerve-wracking i think and you know i'll be honest when he responded back so quickly uh dr brian hayden i was nervous as well yeah i was kind of like oh no now we've got to we got to deliver we got to do it yeah so um Real quick, I just want to mention where I first saw his book. Uh, it was on Twitter, a.k.a. X now, I guess. It was um, an exhalation. And I like to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> From the account, uh, I have never heard of philosophy. And sort of the point of the thread that they put up had to do with looking at uh, you know one of Dr. Hayden's books and sort of Comparing it to what kind of what we're seeing today in regards to like the parapolitical world, and uh, of course, you know, a good portion of the interview, as you will soon see, had to do with information from his books, The Power of Ritual and Prehistory, and Shamans, Sorcerers, and Saints. Um, the thread kind of started out. I'm just going to read to you what the guy said, guy or girl, I don't even know. Uh, quote, I think is an essential read for the parapolitically inclined major implications for the study of terror, the occult, the state, uh, the bourgeois, and the relation between all four. I want to summarize it a bit below. And then he just goes into his uh, summation of what he thinks the power of ritual and prehistory is about. And we're going to throw that link into the show notes if you'd like to. There's going to be a lot of, out, right. lot of links in the show notes. Check oh, yeah. those show notes out. There's going to be links to his books. Um, links to his wiki, links to his website, and uh, just a lot of information there for you. A couple of things he mentioned during the interview. Yes. Link to that. Wait, are you talking about Brian Hayden? Yeah. Okay, I thought you were talking about the guy that, or a girl that tweeted the thing. Yeah, we'll include that about. link to the uh, thread so people can read that as well. Because that's uh, sort of what we get into a little bit. Uh, when I in one of the emails we had a correspond. Okay, so we had a correspondence with uh, Dr. Hayden for probably what four or five weeks. Yeah, 
And uh, that's why it's taken us such a, uh, you know, we had some crazy weather where we live for a few weeks. Oh, yeah. I finally... You got sick. Got the COVID. Right. Lived through it. Lived to tell the tale. You got sick, so that was like another week and a half or so. Yeah. So there was a number of things that put us back. Uh, as far as trying to get this thing uh, lined up with uh, schedules and days and time and work and all that stuff. And uh, he's still very active, obviously, in the archaeological world. So, you know, quite a bit of work to get this thing lined up. But we're going to continue on this path. Isn't that right, Justin? <laughs> the interview path, interviewing professionals, experts. Sure, we can sit here and talk back and forth and we can do research, do a little book report, and tell people about things. But isn't it better to get an actual professional, someone who's been in whatever field of expertise that they've been in, whatever career path they've chosen for decades, to tell us firsthand what they've seen with their with their own eyes, what they've what they've studied, what they've experienced? I hate to say it, but I think you're correct. We can sort of just sit back and let them talk, right? Because they know. Right. And that, that that was very helpful with a lot of the questions that we asked. Mainly you, I'll say. Although I will say, Josh, during most of the interview, as you will all hear, Josh was kind of dancing around the issues that I got to the bottom of at the very end, I like to think. And you'll 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 see that. Yeah. At the very end. At the very end. Last two questions. The real questions. The real that's the whole reason we wanted the interview, to be honest. So, um, Dr. Hayden, he's, uh, you know, he's an author, he's a researcher, he's a professor, archaeologist, and I guess more specifically, an ethno-archaeologist, uh, highly regarded individual, recognized, lots of awards, uh, Fulbright Fellow, Australia, uh, read out some of his awards here. Uh, Wintergreen Foundation for Anthropo Anthropological Research, Canadian Department of External Affairs, uh, Professor Emeritus of Archaeology at Simon Fraser University, British Columbia, Honorary Research Associate, Department of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia. It goes on and on, and he and he spoke with us, and this uh, is amazing to me still. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> I'm still. Uh, this is just incredible. Yeah, and so with all that. Um, as you know, we're sort of a, uh, I would just say we're, we're, we're obviously a conspiracy podcast, but we sort of like to deal with the mysterious, the strange, the unknown. Yeah, it doesn't have to be conspiracy, just, you know, odd, perhaps. Odd, unknown, yeah. ancient history. Uh, one of his areas of focus has to do with secret societies. So, which obviously gets into modern day. We're talking about secret groups like the Bilderbergs, for example, or the, the Masons, the Freemasons, things like that. So, we were, I was trying to think as we were approaching these questions, you know, how do you ask a serious academic these questions uh, without sounding like a nut? I didn't want to sound like a nut, Justin. And you know that. You saw me. Yeah. You're watching me. He, did, I, he yeah. did video. We didn't do video. And uh, to sort of give up some of our secrets there, we were sort of bouncing questions and ideas back to each other. They're <laughs> holding up like cue cards. Now me, now you. Right. I got nothing. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So it was a bit of a challenge to uh, approach some of the topics to a professional like Dr. Hayden. Yeah. Because I, I didn't want to sound too crazy. Right. Atlantis was brought up. 
Yeah. yeah. I think that really was about as crazy as it got, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, for the most I part. I think... You have went... somebody that knows so much about this stuff, you have to ask them about Atlantis. Yeah. You have an ancient uh, history, ancient societies, secret societies professional here. You have to ask them about Atlantis. Yeah. Among other things. Right. Right. Anyway, so... um. Also, briefly here, before we get going on the um, interview, I just wanted to give a little more information about Dr. Hayden, things he's done, uh, just to give you a little more background on him. He goes into some of his uh, career during the interview, once we get started on that, but also um, he's done excavations at the Dinosaur National Monument, uh, is Tunisia, Guatemala, Lebanon, uh, of course, the United States, like in the Southwest, uh, of course, Canada, uh, British Columbia, specifically a place up there that he spent a lot of time is called Keatley Creek, which is a, a fascinating thing. I think I sent a link to you, you on that, which will include yep. there's several videos, interviews, lots of information. Um, I think in some of the videos listed uh, in that website that posting on that, he's you know doing stone tools because he also spent a year in Australia with the Aborigines learning how to make stone tools. So anyway, his uh, education and background just goes on and on. It's very extensive. Very. And he's uh, spent a lot of time in France as well, in the caves and stuff like that, like uh, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Been there, done that. (laughs) Yeah, we, we talk about that quite a bit. Yeah. And so I guess that's pretty much all I have as far as introducing Dr. Hayden. Shall we get to the uh, interview then? I, th- I think so. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Enjoy the enjoy the interview with uh, Dr. Brian Hayden. Yeah. We're very excited today to have with us an expert in the field of ancient history and secret societies, author, researcher, professor, and ethno-archaeologist, Dr. Brian Hayden. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Brian Hayden. Oh, thanks for inviting me to talk on the show today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I guess kind of first and foremost, we would like to probably discuss your extensive career. If you would like to talk about your career, um, places you've, you know, had some field research, your boots on the ground research, your credentials, all these places you visited, um, you have an extensive career behind you. Yeah, it's been a really interesting career. It's uh, I like to tell people I don't have any specialization. I just dabble, you know. <laughs> so I I studied um, uh, stone tool making with the Australian Aborigines for my PhD work, and and before that I got involved in the Mayan highlands and doing some archaeology and ethnoarchaeology there, and then went back a number of years later. And did some more work there. I really liked that area. And then I got uh, pretty interested in French archaeology. I spent a year in France uh, when I was in my in the univer- at the University of Colorado. They had a program there, and I maintained connections there ever since. But I got introduced into the caves and the painted caves and you know French archaeology. It was just fascinating. I love that area as well. But then I got interested in um, in feasting as well, and the role that it might play in the domestication of plants and animals. And it hadn't been very well documented. So I went off to Southeast Asia to see if I could document, you know, I mean, it wasn't very well documented from an archaeological perspective or for archaeological purposes. 
So I went went and lived with the hill tribes there for a number of seasons and uh, and found all about feasting. So, <laughs> um, and then I got uh, interested in the in the different strategies that uh, people use to gain power and inequalities and dominance in societies. And one of those unexplored areas, I mean, one of them was feasting, but there's a whole host of other strategies. And one of the ones that hadn't been very explored before was secret societies. So I got interested in them too and um, didn't do a lot of field work because there aren't too many traditional secret societies left in the world, but there's a lot of literature on it. So I got into that uh, literature as well. But uh, I also did some field work as an excavator and other projects or projects of other peoples in uh, Lebanon and Tunisia and France and uh, and the Great Plains and the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of it's been a really interesting um I don't know, involvement in a number of projects in different parts of the world. Lebanon, too. Yeah. Have you been to uh, Gobekli Tepe? I haven't been there, but uh, I've met the uh, person that's in charge of the excavations there, and I've read, I think, about everything there is that's been written on it. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the areas I would really like to go to in the world. <laughs> One of the few I haven't been to, so. Yeah, so I guess it's really kind of changed things when that place kind of was discovered, right? As far as like. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's a mind-blowing site. And just, uh, yeah, rewrote the book. (laughs) And there, would you say that's the, like the only site like that? Or would you say that there are other sites around the world that are as um, important, I guess? Um, Well, not not at the same uh, time period. Um, they, they recently did find what they call a pyramid, uh, dating back even earlier, which may be the same kind of phenomena, but, uh, there are other sites like Gobekli Tepe, uh, in that same region, uh, the Karahan Tepe, and there's a bunch of others that, uh, have the same kind of, uh, carved pillars and subter- semi-subterranean circular structures, and um, yeah, they've got a lot of similarities in that whole area. So it, it's not just a one-off; it's part of a, a network, a complex of uh, cultural developments for that area. Uh, but in other parts of the world, yeah, there's Chavin de Huantar, which is agricultural rather than hunting and gathering, but it's the same. I think it's basically the same kind of phenomena uh, with even more resources because you've got an agricultural basis. And uh, Stonehenge, I would, uh, and Avebury and a lot of the big mon- megalithic monuments, I think are very similar. And um, yeah, so um, there's, there's no lack of them. Uh, Pueblo Benito in the Southwest is another one. Uh, the Olmec phenomena, the major Olmec sites in um, in southeastern Mexico, I think are the same kind of phenomena. Uh, there's a series of chi- sites in Neolithic China that are also very similar. Um, 
So a big monumental construction, very strong ritual organ orientations, regional centers, uh, lots of prestige goods. Uh, you know, they're all pretty similar in those respects. If we if we look at something like that, it's it's obviously an untrained eye. But when you look at something like Gobekli Tepe, what what do you see there? You know, like what does that tell you when you see that sort of? I mean, it's it's putting back the history of things, I guess. Yeah, it's surprising to see it that early, um, to some ex to some extent. Oh, another uh, uh, similar kind of development, although it doesn't involve architecture, but it's with hunting and gathering societies. I think the painted caves in in France and Spain are a very similar kind of phenomena too. So you know, when I look at Gobekli Tepe. Um, First thing is, there's no good water source. It's out up on the top of a mountain. It's not really your normal residential site. Uh, there may be some residential structures there, but you know, probably nothing. You know, on the scale of a uh, a regular village or anything like that. Uh, yeah. The amount of of manpower that was involved in building it, and quarrying and transporting the stones. Uh, carving the stones, uh, shaping them. Uh, you're looking at massive, massive, massive um, efforts and expenditure of, of manpower. Uh, and that all is predicated on surpluses, being able to pay people. I mean, that's how you get these things done. It's not It's not done on... Uh, on the basis of belief and, you know, just uh, goodwill. Uh, no, these things have to be paid for with feasting, basically. Uh, the slaughter of animals, uh, usually cattle, or the hunting of animals, providing of meat especially, and it seems at Quebecly probably alcohol as well, beer. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing is the uh, really strong ritual orientation of these structures. They're not domestic structures, uh, despite what some people think. Um, they are semi-subterranean, semi so that they are not meant to be out in the open where everybody can, can watch. No, they're meant for a restricted number of people, and they're hidden away, out of sight, uh, so that they are secret, if you like. Um, and the and the number of depiction of animals. There are a lot of um, what I would call power animals, you know, snakes and uh, and aurochs, you know, the wild cattle and boars and animals like that. These are not uh, your usual hunting animals. They're pretty dangerous kinds of animals with high symbolical loadings um, and. Uh, and birds as well, birds of prey, especially. Uh, so, you know, the iconography, the, the kinds of uh, images that are depicted on these pillars, they're all power images, uh, which is what I think secret societies are fundamentally about. And finally, um, there are, well, there's a number of phallic uh, representations, which tends to be uh, something that crops up with male-dominated secret societies. Um, there's also, um, you know, feasting foods, uh, as I said, alcohol, which is certainly one of them, and meat. Uh, and then um, 
fine. There was one more thing I was thinking of here. Um, uh, it's gone. At any rate, so th that's uh, all of those things I think are very typical of secret society kinds of organizations. Oh, the other thing was there's some indication of scattered human bone mixed in with the uh, bones of animals that were eaten during feasts. And that's another thing that uh, I found is tends to be fairly common uh, with ethnographic secret societies. That is, there's a, an emphasis on, on cannibalism uh, as a show of power and as a, as a transgression of normal morality. I guess the sacrificing plays into that, I guess, too, to some degree, right? Oh, yeah. There's well, if you got cannibalism, you got sacrifice, yeah. Into the uh, extents with which that they would do the sacrificing. I mean, they make a big show out of it, right? It's a big production, so. Yeah. Yeah, there's another site, Jerfel uh, uh, Ahmar, down in Syria, where they've got the same kind of semi-subterranean circular structure, uh, the same kind of benches along the out along the walls, um, they don't have the central pillars, but they've, you know, it's divided up nevertheless, about the same size. And remarkably, in one of these structures, uh, there was a headless body that was uh, prone, basically face down, except there was, the head was missing. Uh, and uh, just one of the most dramatic, it was a young woman, um, right in the middle of the, of the floor, uh, and uh, the, the fingers are still uh, dug into the ground, um, uh, or the bones of the fingers. Uh, it's just one of the most dramatic, you know, kinds of events that I can imagine. Where and was this again? Jerf el Ahmar. Jerf the uh, the red. Ahmar means red. It's uh, along the Euphrates. It was excavated when they were putting in one of the dams. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a woman uh, named Stordeur that was doing the excavations there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just remarkable. Do you there see lots of commonalities in, in uh, or, or how many commonalities in different sites like this around the world have you seen that made you like wonder why does this look like somebody that's way over here on this side of the planet or how have these things you know sort of shown up to be very similar when people are so far away and supposedly ne maybe never had contact with one another you know well that's true that's true it's a good point um no instead of having a a single origin and these ideas spreading around the world um I think it's the what's common is the uh, strategy that people come up with to try to to try to impress people and to consolidate uh, power using secret societies uh, strategies. And uh, what they do is they try to uh, impress people with first of all with their um, with their profane power uh, that is their control over human life. And they try to induce really strong emotions in people by making them go through very difficult trials and by giving them shocking kinds of emotional events to deal with. Um, oh, and another, another thing that's very interesting, and this is very common 
another common feature is the use of uh, sensory deprivation to induce altered states because when people are in altered states, they tend to be much more susceptible to suggestion and to accepting things and to manipulation. Um, and they, the altered states also reinforce the claim that uh, these secret societies know how to contact the supernatural and to manipulate it. Um, and so they do, there's a lot of effort uh, spent in, in creating altered states of consciousness in initiates in particular. And one of the ways you do that is through sensory deprivation, that is by going into very dark areas uh, with very little or no lighting um, and no sound. Uh, and so what we find is a lot of these, these initiation areas for secret societies are held in naturally dark areas like caves or in constructed dark areas like a, a semi-subterranean or completely subterranean buildings that are dug into the ground uh, and that you can uh, shut all light and sound out of. Um, so that serves two functions. One is it keeps everything secret because nobody can see in, but it also creates these uh, sensory deprivation kinds of environments as well. Um, and so, just um, to be clear, you don't think they actually have any sort of special ability to contact the other worlds and uh, they don't have any actual supernatural powers. I have to ask that question. I'm sorry. Well, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, you're the expert. Well, no, I'm not an expert in in, uh, <laughs> in trying to determine what what uh, reality is of any supernatural claims. I thought um, we were going to get all that I, figured out today. Well, <laughs> I can give you a couple leads, maybe, but uh, it's you know it's that's the million dollar question. Yeah, you know, is there any existence after death, or is there any spiritual world at all? Surely, we um, can figure that one out today. <laughs> easy um i would say that uh in terms there are two there are two aspects to this question one is uh is there some sort of basic uh connection that can be made to other realities other dimensions of reality uh that we're not normally aware of uh and that's on a very general plane you know like if if there's some sort of spiritual existence or some sort of uh, supernatural effects. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other is the specific claims. That is the content of these things. Um, does my, does my grandfather really still exist at some, you know, does my deceased grandfather really exist in some sort of a, or do the gods really exist? And or do angels really exist? Or do leprechauns really exist? Or, you know, you go through right. the whole series of things. And, um, you know, I, I just have to conclude that there's so much variation uh, in the world, and there has been through time, that these the specific content is probably not very realistic. Uh, that these may 
these concepts and uh, and images of other beings may represent, you know, be maybe symbolical of some other kind of energy that's out there that does exist, but that we're just giving it a uh, a facade, a a face to, so that we can relate to it. But that uh, when we start getting into specific, you know, prognostications or specific um, commandments or specific uh, dictates that are being given down by these entities, uh, that's probably not uh, what's really happening. You know, those are probably just part of our our need to conceptualize things. And a lot of times uh, these, like the commandments, the Ten Commandments, you know, they're probably being promulgate, promulgated for political or social reasons. The people that claim that they have gotten these things from supernatural beings, but they're using that, that claim, those connections uh, for their own purposes um, and just cloaking them in kinds of concepts that would be acceptable or interesting to the people in their community. So the specific content, you know, I I don't think the I don't think you can make a really good argument for that. But on the general level, um yeah, there do seem to be some really interesting things going on. Uh and I was actually <laughs> I meant to go through uh, book before uh, this show, and I forgot to do it, but it's called Quantum Questions. And it's basically a series of readings by all the famous, the most famous uh, new uh, physicists in the world, the people that have developed quantum theory, you know, de Broglie and uh, people like that, and Einstein as well, and, uh, and uh, Niels Bohr, you know, you go through the list of the, all of the great scientists, and these are these are readings by uh, of articles by these individuals that say that having looked at the micro microscopic uh, composition of the universe, they still don't know what reality is, and they have very very mystical kinds of awe about what reality is and their writings uh, reflect this. And so, you know, it's, especially when you get into quantum physics, it's uh, it's so bizarre kind of world that you got to wonder what's going on. And um, so if the, if the most famous thinkers of physics in physics uh, have a mystical view of what reality is, you know, I I think that's a pretty good indication that there's something going on that we don't have a very good handle on at this point beyond just the material world that we see in front of us. Did you ever, or have you ever seen any evidence in everything that you've seen in your career that would lead you to believe that humans have lost any abilities or that there was some real validity to the whole mysticism and there was we've lost some sort of abilities or powers over time 
No, I don't. Uh, they wonder I don't about how things were built, you know, and I just you you wonder. Right. Was there some sort of knowledge that we some sort of are were people no. people 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 a thousand years ten thousand years were we always the same that we are now kind of a thing you know. Well, that's my take on things. Yeah, I don't think people have changed that much um, in terms of, uh, especially in terms of building things. You know, basically, it just takes a lot of manpower and a lot of time and uh, suitable technology and the ability to pay people to do these things. Um, you know, if you look at Stonehenge, for instance, uh, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, stories about what how the stones might have been used but you know one of the interesting things that i found out from my work in indonesia was that people were still putting up those huge megaliths uh up until very recent and they still are in some places uh one of my students was working in sumba uh, and they were still putting up these large megaliths and still transporting them by human labor um so it's not like you need um, any supernatural powers or anything like that to get these things done. And we've got records uh, because these were major undertakings. These were phenomenally major works uh, that required huge amounts of finances and surpluses, surplus food, a uh, huge amount of labor. And they were so big that just the transportation of these things was recorded in stone by the Egyptians and Sumerians. And you can see them dragging these huge monuments uh, on rollers, you know, big log rollers, uh, and pouring oil down in front of these uh, things to help uh, lubricate the, the transport, and hundreds of people pulling on ropes to get to move these things. So there's no mystery about how these monuments were built. You just need a lot of people. And as I say, people are, we're still doing it today. I wasn't aware that they were still doing that today. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, there's not very many places that they're still doing it, but, uh, and they're starting to use trucks these days to, <laughs> to, to uh, do it. But there, there's still some people that uh, like the old traditional ways. So, well, that is very interesting. I was not aware of that. Yeah. Not that I yeah, wanted to of... imply telepathic powers or telekinesis there. I was just curious what you thought about that. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I know there are a lot of people that, think that there <laughs> must have been some supernatural, uh, you know, element involved. But no, Definitely it was more not. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you Google Sumba and uh, stone moving. Uh, you, you can see a lot of pictures of those. I will be doing that later. Uh, can I, I'm just going to ask a question, just going, kind of going back to the beginning of your career. What was it that uh, got you interested in the whole societies and the feasting? Like, was there a certain site that you visited that got you going on that? Or was it, have you always been interested in that? Uh, no, there, it's a, it's a little bit of an involved story. I'll try to keep it as short as I can. <clears throat> but um, I was excavating a site in British Columbia where we had uh, some indication of inequalities and uh, hierarchy, a little, you know, not much, but a little bit. And, and also um, 
a lot of prestige goods and things like that, uh, I was pretty convinced that there were people that were in positions of power. Um, and I was trying to figure out, well, how this all worked. And according to the standard um, standard view at the time, this is going back uh, 30, or 1986 at any rate, um, the standard view at the time was that people were put in power initially, you know, be, when uh, starting from egalitarian societies in order to serve the community. There was a community need for, uh, for defense or for processing food or for getting food, capturing food, whatever it happened to be. There was, or for information transfer, there was a whole bunch of suggestions. And, you know, this is all sort of abstract <clears throat> as far as I was concerned. I wanted to see if we could document exactly how that worked in real villages uh, at that similar level. And I'd worked in the Mayan area before, so I thought, well, we'll go down. Uh, I took a student down there and we went to some of these Mayan villages that had been very isolated up until uh, about 20 years before we were in those villages when they put the Pan-American Highway through. Um, and so we we started asking people, you know, in the uh, villages, the older people. Uh, so, okay, what well, when there were, was there ever any, any famines or any uh, shortage, food shortages, uh, any, any kinds of events that required some help? Um, and some assistance in the past. And they said, sure, we had, you know, famines and all sorts of other things. And I said, okay, well, what did the people that were in charge in the village, the Presidente Municipal and people like that, what did they do uh, when there were these famines? Did they, did they organize um, sort of caravans to go out and get food or did they arrange for loans or, you know, what did, what did they do? Did they help the community? And they, and one community after the other, after the other, after the other, they all said, no, they didn't do anything to help. Instead, what they did was they started uh, selling off their stores at exorbitant prices uh, to people that were starving. And they bought up their land at, at dirt prices um, because in exchange for corn or maize, things like that and uh, at first i thought that was probably just historical accident or aberrant for whatever reason but no as i said at one village after the next after the, they were all basically saying the same thing and so i thought well this is a real game changer and i started thinking that uh, it started being interested in how these these uh, individuals managed to get that kind of power and how you know they if they were exploiting people how are they doing it uh and so i started looking at all the different strategies and feasting was one of them so um any rate uh there's another whole dimension to that story but that's that's basically it so i i got really interested in feasting as a as a way of manipulating people in traditional societies uh, it's still a way of making friends and creating networks.
support networks and things like that or getting things done. Like if you want to get help for moving, you know, you have a big beer and pizza mm. event. So you feed them, they'll come. It's also a good way to show that your society is better than everybody if you have all that to just to throw around kind of. Well, it's a way of inviting uh, people that you want to um, create a strong relationship with. Yeah, and trying to impress them and try to please them and give them foods that they really like. And uh, and that creates a sort of sense of debt. You know, when the... Uh, when the, when the Hare Krishnas wanted wanted to recruit people, they would give away free food. And what this does is sort of emotionally uh, that we're hardwired to when we get something that we like uh, or just get something for nothing, we feel a sense of obligation or you know a sense of reciprocity that we should you know do something in return. So. Is that kind of the uh, the origins of like shamanism? Does that sort of where that starts? You know, someone sort of has this ability and power and they can provide this. I mean, is that part of the sort of like aristocracy that they create around a secret society? Yeah, there's uh, <clears throat> maybe a little bit of a relationship there. I mean, shamans usually get paid for their work. You know, they get food in exchange for their services. Um, and uh, there is, uh, I don't know, I think um, some senses shamans have more power, uh, more influence at any rate in community affairs than most other people. But they're also generally repositories of, um, of knowledge for the community. They know the mythology. They know how to contact uh, ancestors or other spirits. They know how to uh, find game. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's. They're, they're a major resource for a lot of communities. And uh, when they and, use uh, uh, psychedelics, hallucinogens, I mean, are these things like just trial and error over the eons? People come up with these things, find these things, or it's, I guess you're wondering, one wonders if there's, if there was more to how they came up with their bag of tricks, kind of, so to speak, you know, like where did they come up with all this stuff that, you know? Well, uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> um, in terms of the psychedelics, uh, people are constantly, I mean, it's not just the shamans, but everybody is uh, constantly in traditional societies trying out different herbs and different preparations and different uh, techniques for uh, finding finding something to eat, basically. And uh, if you try everything, you're eventually going to come across some psychedelics. Um, some of the preparations are so involved, it's yeah, it's kind of... Ayahuasca. Scratch, yeah, you got to scratch your head and figure. Wonder how they figured that one out. But <laughs> what are some um, of those preparations? Do you, have, do you have any examples that? Oh well, just getting the uh, just getting the toxins out of acorns and out, out of manioc and uh, things like that, or blowing stuff up your nose. You know, like the ayahuasca. Um, you know, why would you do that? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know why? Why would it occur to anybody to? Who was the first roast? guy, right? Yeah. Why would they? Do, why would they be roasting this stuff and blowing it up their nose? I. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, I guess that's why people would wonder, did they have some sort of special ability too, if they could create these uh, these potions, these brews and stuff, and then give them to well, people? And... Well, again, in terms of uh, abilities to uh, know what's on the other, you know, beyond the veil in the other dimensions of the universe, um, I don't know if you ever saw one of these, uh, these uh, ceremonies where the shamans and the Amazon sort of blow the ayahuasca up their nose and then start seeing the Hecuda spirits. Uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty transparent that all this stuff is just being made up on the, <laughs> at the time. I mean, and that, uh, well, it's, you know, they are uh, hallucinating, um, but you know, if you get a chance, the uh, Napoleon Chagnon made a film called The Magical Death. And um, yeah, it's just pretty transparent as to, you know, that all this stuff is just basically being hallucinated. And it probably doesn't have much connection with anything real, other than on a very general level that there might be, you know, some sort of spiritual energies, let's call them. Uh, out there, but uh, they're not they're not going around with all these fancy feathers and they're not um, killing individuals uh, from the enemy tribe and things like that. So you've seen the show yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, I used to use it in a class as a matter of fact. Oh really? Wow. When you're uh, in like in a cave or whatever looking at the you know old art like cave paintings can you tell the difference pretty quick between like what is this an everyday drawing or the stuff that people are hallucinating and they're just drawing all kinds of crazy stuff is it pretty glaringly obvious what's what no no um when we go back if we're talking about the upper paleolithic caves you know from 10 to 30 plus thousand years ago uh there's really no everyday uh kind of scene or image in those caves, uh, there are animals, but uh, they're not, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't call them every day. And I don't think they were hallucinated either. There's, there's basically two kinds of images that you get in the upper Paleolithic caves. You know, later on in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, yeah, you get some art, uh, painted art or engraved art uh that looks uh, battle scenes and marriages and uh hunting scenes and all sorts of stuff like that um but in the upper paleolithic you don't get those things uh what you get are either one very crude kinds of uh, images that are like the graffiti you might see in the in a bathroom stall mm -hmm. um you know just People that don't have a lot of artistic talent, just um, scribbling around sometimes or just making crude uh, without any artistic training. I shouldn't say without any talent, but they didn't have any training. So you get those kinds of things. And, you know, I've compared those to the same kind of situations you get in really slow elevators because uh, you get graffiti in elevators, too. And. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, you're just stuck in that place and waiting for a long time and you're bored. And so you start scribbling on the walls. That's basically what bathroom graffiti is about, too. Um, and so there's that kind of stuff. 
and maybe that's everyday kind of you know that would enter into everyday kinds of uh interests or themes um and then you get the really professional high quality art that was obviously made by people that were trained and i'm pretty sure paid for uh, creating these images in deep in the caves because we get evidence of scaffolding that was put up in order to paint these images high up we get very complex uh, paint recipes that uh, took time to develop and get the materials for uh, they required a long period inside the caves rather than just a short visiting period. Uh, people had to spend hours, basically, and in some cases, maybe days, uh, making these images. So you need to bring in uh, lighting sources for long time periods. Uh, they're major undertakings. Mm -hmm. um, Is that what the example of that be the Lascaux? France cave? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Alaska was sort of like, it's been called the um, Sistine Chapel of uh, <laughs> of yeah. the Paleolithic, basically. And that's, I think that's basically what it was. Um, because the Sistine Chapel was really only for use by the Pope and his entourage. And I think uh, in, in some of the, some of the, um, more difficult areas to access in Lascaux it was probably only for the highest ranking individuals mm -hmm. as well. But these are really well decorated uh, parts of the cave. You've actually been there, right? I've seen videos on YouTube and stuff. I'm sure actually going there is a whole different. Oh yeah, level. yeah. It's a it's a lifetime experience. Yeah, yeah. it's a, yeah. I was I was been in Lascaux and Fond de Gome and. Uh, Neo and a bunch of the other caves, uh, and they're they're fabulous. There's some that are still open to the public, uh, and I you know I can't recommend them highly enough to for people to go visit. So when you find all this all this stuff, like you mentioned uh, paint recipes and stuff, do you guys just get the paint and figure out what's made of, or is there like records that they kept or something like that 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 they you figure out all this stuff. yeah no there's no records uh this is way before writing um although there is some symbolic uh inscriptions but who knows what they refer to um but uh no it's just taking small pieces small chips of paint that have maybe flecked off of the walls or uh, or on a block of stone that's fallen onto the ground um from above uh and so they basically take uh, small bits of the paint and analyze it. In the is the sorcerer that that's one of the cave paintings in France. I'm looking through some of the images in your book, and that looked like another image from another cave in another part of the world. Uh, the Sioux. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that's a great image. <laughs> yeah, that's a the the sorcerer. That's what he's called. Uh, is from the cave of Les Trois Frères down in, in near the Pyrenees Mountains. I didn't want to France. butcher that. That's why I didn't say that part. That's okay. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's a it's got the head of a of a deer or something like a deer. It's got antlers and it's got this long tail, and yep. he's uh, turned to look right at you know, sort of in a walking pose and turned to look right at the viewer. Uh, and you get almost the exact same 
depiction uh, from a secret society image in North America from the Sioux. Yeah. Um, this antlered figure with the same tail, the same gaze, the same gait. Uh, and the one of uh, the Sioux example is, and this is a historic uh, image, but he's holding a drum. The uh, the one in France wasn't holding a drum, but uh, otherwise, you know, just remarkably similar. And so I'm not trying to say that there was any direct connection or anything like that, but to see these, these two totally independent uh, sources coming up with something that's so similar uh, just indicates to you that, uh, you know, the same processes, the same mental processes, the same kinds of effects that people are trying to achieve uh, with these concepts and the images is uh, very fundamental to our way of thinking. And so at any rate, it was just a remarkable coincidence. Yeah. So time frame wise, were these two images roughly created at the same time or were they? No, 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 no. They, uh, the one in France is like uh, 10 or 12,000 years old. And, and the Sioux example is modern. I mean, it's, you know, when you say probably, modern. well, uh, 1890 or early 1900s yeah, in there. That's still really weird, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. But, you know, you get a lot of uh, really, you get enough people and they're trying to do the same kind of thing and come up with uh, the same kinds of strategies and stream, same kinds of ways of impressing people and this, the same basic uh, orientation towards an animal, um, animal spirituality, if you want to call it that. Uh, and, you know, you've got to come up with some sort of similar results in unexpected ways from time to time. So I, <laughs> there was a uh, great example of that I used in class from a Mayan excavation down in Mexico. And it was a potsherd. And uh, on the potsherd, there was these symbols that looked like a C and an O and an E. And, um, you know, it's, there's no, there's no um, letters or anything like that in that area. But of interest, one of the main archaeologists in Mexico was named Michael Coe. And there's his name on this pot that was 3,000 years old. <laughs> so, um, I, are, I guess our minds we try to make these connections i guess you think it's just a oh we... yeah 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 <laughs> no just to just to say that you know you get come up with weird coincidences sometimes in in south america i guess uh the it's, newest... like, it's like the the story of the infinite number of monkeys and the infinite number of typewriters and you know they produce shakespeare eventually but at any rate go ahead <laughs> uh, yeah i see what i see what you're saying there you make a good make a valid point yeah. um in in South America, they're I guess the newest thing they're kind of using lidar now to kind of get through the, yeah. uh, the tree cover and stuff, and they're starting to find a lot more uh, structures and things like that. What are your what are your thoughts on that uh, as, as, as to what they could, what they're going to come across, uh, what they're going to discover, what they're going to find? Any, any well, they're coming up with they're already coming up with uh, fabulous um, insights into the complexity of some of the uh 
they were probably chiefdoms uh, in the Amazon uh, way before the Spanish arrived and that probably disappeared before the Spanish arrived in many places uh, because of a lot of uh, events, whether it's climate change or whether it's overshoot uh, and erosion, you know, over, over irrigation, over, you know, there are a lot of reasons why these uh, early societies uh, collapsed in a lot of cases, uh, complex societies like chiefdoms or even states. Um, so, uh, and, the, you know, when the ethnographers, when early explorers arrived in the Amazon, they found very tribal kinds of fairly simple societies. Um, and uh, the Amazon was covered with jungle and so it was fairly unthinkable that uh, there would have been complex societies there in the past. But, uh, you know, the LIDAR is really, really showing, no, they were building mounds, they had irrigation, they had all sorts of things that, uh, very large settlements, uh, they had really thriving kinds of, uh, we could probably call them civilizations, um, uh, but certainly chiefdom levels kinds of things, building mounds, uh, elaborate uh, ritual and religious lives and things like that. And we get the same thing in the Maya, uh, especially the Paten area of Guatemala and uh, southern Yucatan, uh, where there's basically was <clears throat> very few people living at the time the Europeans arrived and... Um, it was all covered with jungle, uh, rainforest, jungle, tropical jungle. And it was a big surprise to find there were pyramids there initially. And then later on to find out that, no, these large areas were being uh, cleared and irrigated, uh, big water management systems undertaken, large cities. Uh, we're still discovering a lot more. So, yeah, LIDAR has really opened up the... Uh, are open to our eyes to see what things were really like in the past rather than uh, what we assumed things were like because of the low populations and dense jungle cover when the Europeans arrived. Do any of your theories differ from uh, what you would maybe call mainstream archaeology as to what time frames and things like that going into the past or technologies as far as like the way they built things the, the way you see pyramids all over the world do you have any differing theories um as i mentioned in the email you know educated speculation you're free to you're free yeah. here to say and think whatever you like okay well thanks <laughs> Um, I don't have too many uh, widely divergent ideas, although I am in arguments with a, a bunch of people in France about uh, the painted caves. Uh, the big the big bone of contention right now that I'm involved in, uh, where my ideas uh, are divergent from, I guess, mainstream French archaeological thought, is uh, whether the societies during the Ice Ages... Um, say, 10 to the upper Paleolithic Ice Ages, 10 to 35,000 years ago uh, in southwestern Europe, whether they were egalitarian societies where uh, uh, nobody had any undue power or wealth or influence over other people, 
or whether they were in fact inegalitarian societies where there were um, people with a lot of power and wealth and influence. Uh, and so, you know, the, the model that I use, or I should say the model that the egalitarian people use are uh, ethnographic groups like the, like the San in the Kalahari Desert of Africa, or uh, perhaps in the boreal forests of North America or the Australian Aborigines, uh, which are all fairly egalitarian kinds of communities uh, traditionally. Uh, whereas the ethnographic model that I think is most appropriate are the ethnographic Hunnigan gathering groups in California and the Northwest and in Alaska, coastal Alaska, um, especially in, I think it's the most uh, appropriate ones are the ones in the interior of the Northwest, um, which is the area I've been working on and which did have, you know, slaves and potlatches and uh, because, uh, and like the ones in the coast as well. And also a lot of wealth in terms of beads, um, but coppers and jade and other things as well. So, um, yeah, there were, there were uh, especially on the coast, uh, in the Northwest, there were a lot of slaves traditionally. And this goes back, uh, you know, probably several thousand years. Uh, we can use linguistics to look at words that were common a few thousand years ago, and slaves is one of them. Uh, also chief. Uh, so, you know, I, and I think we can see a lot of evidence of wealth in the Upper Paleolithic uh, burials in particular, but also the production of art, uh, the, just an enormous production of art, comparable, I think, to what the art that was being produced on the Northwest Coast and in the interior in California. Um, and so I, th I think there's really strong reason for thinking that these groups in the Upper Paleolithic were uh, non-egalitarian uh, groups that had differences in wealth and power and probably wives uh, or marriage partners, wives probably, um, um, because they rich people could afford to obtain more wives because there was a cost in, involved. Uh, but they, they also use secret societies to consolidate the wealth and power. And, uh, and they had the, the, the finances, if you like, uh, the material wherewithal to, to train artists and to um, employ artists to make these incredible masterpieces in caves and elsewhere as well, carved pieces that are real masterpieces or masterpieces in stone that very few people could make even today. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's my argument, uh, but, and it's considered heretical by a number of people in, in France. And I make the same argument for the Natufians in the Near East, who were uh, around just before agriculture, 10, 12 to 14,000 years ago, and uh, come up with the same argument there. The people in the Near East, the archaeologists in the Near East, don't 
don't think that they were non-egalitarian. They think everything was egalitarian. I said, no, 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 these guys had wealth. <laughs> they were burying people with thousands of shell beads. And each one of those beads takes a you know, considerable time to make or is difficult to obtain. I wonder so, why they would, uh, wouldn't consider that or wouldn't think that if you see it elsewhere, you know what I mean? It seems like that would be a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems no brainer to me too. <laughs> yeah. Some people are reluctant to give up their pet theories. So do you have any other, um, theories regarding other aspects of, well, domestic, and... yeah, domestication. That's another one that uh, that uh, I've had a hard time convincing other people about. But I'm convinced that uh, it's pretty close to the money. And basically, the argument is that once you get these these more complex non-egalitarian societies, that well, how do they get to be a complex and non-egalitarian? Well, one of the ways is that feasting, as I mentioned before. Uh, because feasting creates debts. Uh, if you get invited to a feast uh, and given fine food, then you're obligated to return that same uh, same favor by holding a feast of your own and inviting the previous uh, hosts to your. And especially if you get given gifts like uh, jade or copper or carved, specially carved bowls or things like that, um, you need to return those. If you don't return the feast and if you don't return uh, the gifts, uh, especially with interest or with a little bit of uh, top, top up, um, you create a social enemy and, uh, and then it becomes very difficult. So once you get, once you buy into these feasting systems, you're pretty much stuck there and you can get more and more into debt and never get out of it. Sort of like the same credit card systems today. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, so my argument is that um, these feasting systems, when they become competitive, it's, it's a positive uh, feedback kind of system where you give a gift once and when you get it, get the return, there's there's more involved because you're, the person that's returning to it wants to impress you with how how good he is, how rich he is. And so then you have to return something more to him. And there's always there's a built in mechanism to make this ever more productive. Um, and you don't have any kind of mechanism in the past to try to to force people to produce more and more. And especially if you're competing over marriage partners or alliance partners or uh, partners that have, uh, you know, important food resources that you want to get access to. Other people are trying to get those same people in marriage. Other people are trying to get those same resources or the same allies. So when you've got competition going on, there's a built-in drive to produce more because you've got to outproduce the competition if you want to get the marriage partner, if you want to get the war ally, if you want to get the re new resources. Um, and so feasting is the means of, of generating more of these gifts. 
uh, it's always done in this feasting kind of context, marriage feasts or alliance feasts or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so there's pressure to produce more and more and more. And the most important, uh, the most important items in these traditional feasts are, first of all, meat, and especially fatty meats, very rich meat like we get in the supermarkets today. That used to be a rare commodity. And alcohol, meat, alcohol, and starches, bread, uh, are the three um, triumphate, the three pillars that hold up feasts in traditional societies. And those are the things that uh, we get domesticated first, grains, animals, and alcohol comes in shortly afterwards. And just to put a fine point on the topic, uh, in the ethno-archaeological investigations I've done and other people have done made the same observation, in traditional societies, domesticated animals, domesticated animals are only used in feasts. They're not used for daily food. They are major investments. They are the most valuable things in traditional communities, whether it's pigs, goats, cattle, even rabbits, even rabbits. They're only killed for special occasions. And it's true today in traditional societies throughout the world. It's one of the most ironclad uh, patterns that I know of. And I think that that indicates that that is exactly the context that animals were domesticated in, the reason why they were domesticated in the past as well. They are the origins of domestication, is my argument. Trying to argue against other people that say, oh, no, it was food shortages that drove people to domesticate foods. I said, no, no, no. You only get feasting and when you get food surpluses. And when you get competitive feasting, there's never enough food. There's never enough material you can give away to outcompete your competitors. These secret societies, do they quickly seem to like get a little nefarious with their activities? <laughs> you know, like how quickly do these things all seem to like, you know, when they want to exercise power over other people and, you know. Right. That well, seems to be a big, um, by the very, you know, just by saying secret society, these these group of people have this, do this, know that, and then everybody else is on the outside. That's right. Um, well, what they do is they try to get support from the rest of the community for their activities, for for protecting the community and watching out for its uh, supernatural and for its uh, physical war welfare. Um and basically, they want to get, um, in order to join the secret society, you need to pay a high price, but they also get contributions from the rest of the community for the rituals and for their performances and for everything else, for their existence. Uh, and in order to do that, you need to convince them that you've got some validity. Uh, and they do that. They've, um, there are two, strat two fundamental strategies, two basic strategies that they use. 
One is the carrot and the other is the stick. So they put on big shows to convince people and to uh, tell them that they're providing all these great benefits for the community, keeping the cannibal spirits out of the community, making sure the sun comes up, uh, making sure the crops are good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's the carrot. Uh, and for the people, because there are always a few people that are doubters, that are skeptics, that say, I don't believe any of this BS. This is all a bunch of, you know, malarkey. Um, and that there are no spirits, there are... <laughs> There's always doubters. At least that's what I found. And I think the most um, detailed accounts of community beliefs indicate that as well. Um, and so what do you do with those people if you're in, um, in trying to convince everybody to, to contribute to you? Um, you've got to have a stick of some sort. And uh, people that contravene or that publicly doubt the, the veracity or the reality of what these secret societies are proposing uh, and that try to undermine the, the basis for their claims, uh, they can't really be tolerated. And so they get attacked. Um, if there's anybody that trans, transgresses into secret society space, where they hold their rituals, their buildings, um, they can be killed. And that's one of the most common um, common kinds of um, observations people made about secret societies in different parts of the world, is that transgressors are either whipped or killed. Uh, and certainly the threat is always there. Uh, and they're... They, their houses could be visited by people in masks. So you don't know who's behind the mask. And the mask is supposed to be a supernatural entity that's really pissed off at you because you said that they didn't exist. And there they are burning your house down. Um, so, yeah, they they can be pretty nasty, especially well, they've got people that uh, they hire as spies, too, in a lot of cases to go around to listen in to conversations in the community and report anybody to the secret society members who is casting aspersions or casting doubt upon the uh, the motivations or the the reality of what the secret society members are proposing. Um, and in addition to that, in order to demonstrate the the reality and also the consequences that could come to pass. Um, but to, to demonstrate the reality of some of these spirits, like the cannibal spirit, um, if you um, if you don't think the cannibal spirits are real, well, we put somebody out in the woods where the cannibal spirits live. You know, some of these initiates, and uh, and if we if we starve them long enough, they'll become possessed by cannibal spirits, and when they come back into the uh, village after there's time of seclusion, they are possessed by cannibal spirits and they create havoc and terror. Uh, and it's not only the cannibal spirits. I mean, in other secret societies, you know, they, they just the presence of these spirits 
can create havoc and destruction, whether they're cannibal or other kinds. And so that's that's what unleashed supernatural spirits are like. They create havoc and terror, and they destroy things, they break down people's houses, furniture, they bite people. Uh, when they're unleashed, it's absolute terror. And that's what a lot of the early uh, descriptions of these traditional secret societies were like. They said, when it's time for their ceremonies, uh, it's just a rule by terror. And these are terrorists. And uh, some of the African secret societies are called, you know, schools of terror. Um, and so this is all done to demonstrate what things would be like if the secret society didn't exert some sort of control over these terrorizing spirits. They would just create total chaos. It's like, uh, you know, the Night of the Living Dead movies that you see, uh, <laughs> or the or zombie movies, you know. That's yeah. the kind of, uh, kind of uh, vision that, you know, emerges from some of these accounts. Uh, just a total social, economic, and every other kind of chaos with people dying and uh, suffering because of it. But, but thank goodness, the secret societies are there to protect you. And so they step in and they, you know, put the cedar ring around the cannibal, uh, the, the boy that's possessed by cannibal spirit, and all of a sudden he becomes calm and docile and everything is fine again. And so, but if you don't support the secret society, that's what can happen. And so bringing that into knowing that people were like that then and knowing how people are now bringing that into the <laughs> modern day and uh, sort of going back to that thread that I sent you that was on Twitter where people were looking at your yeah. <laughs> book, The Power of Ritual and Prehistory. Yeah. Um, do you, how pervasive do you see this? in modern society because that particular thread the person was talking about parapolitics which has to do with obviously your governments your intelligence agencies the way they may use church religion all of these things tied together to do this what sounds like exactly what you're saying <laughs> to the peasantry well i think uh i think uh these um strategies that were developed you know thousands of years ago by these uh these ambitious people that want power and want to uh, want to get wealth uh, i think they set the foundation for our type of society uh and they set the, they established the initial strategies i mean we still use uh, feast to get support, you know, all these uh, political dinners, and, uh, corporate dinners for recruiting clients and people. And, you know, it's still using the same strategies uh, in politics, the same thing. The rhetoric hasn't changed either. I mean, the rhetoric of everybody in the secret society is that we are protecting you. There are all these horrible things in the world, but we're protecting you from and you know, and we can do it better. We've got still a competitive, uh, you know, organizations. There wasn't just one secret society. There was usually several within these communities, just like political parties today. 
and uh, they were competing with each other for membership and for influence and things like that. They were basically running the show. Um, and I think basically all of these strategies were set thousands of years ago by ambitious people who were using surpluses. And you have to realize that, you know, the uh, our society has enormous surpluses. Um, there are very few people left that are actually producing most of our food. It's, uh, with machines, we can produce a lot more. Uh, but, you know, we've got all this surplus energy we're getting from other sources. The main source of surplus energy used to be food. Now we've got a dozen other really important other kinds of sources like fossil fuels in particular um, to produce energy that we can, it's all surplus. We don't need any of this stuff. Uh, our society is a consumer society, but this all started back uh, when secret societies were started and feasters started giving gifts in order to get marriage partners and alliances and um, everything else. So um, to produce these gifts, it's basically surplus production. It's not anything you need to survive, um, or at least not strictly in terms of physical needs. Um Today, we can't really survive without our social network. And so we're stuck uh, with production of some sort of surplus to, to survive. <laughs> but at um, any rate, so things have evolved in that sense. But the strategies that are used are still fundamentally the same that were established by these people when they start first started producing surpluses 10, uh, 10 30,000 like years ago. Yeah, well, the rhetoric, as I say, yeah. has not really changed much. That People always do things for the good of the community. They create the problem and then they fix it for you. That's right. That's right. And it may seem far-fetched, but I'm just going to ask to ask, do you think any of these ancient societies, do people still have any beliefs? I mean, you know, there's there's subcultures and things like that, but like, and the upper crust, we'll say, the higher elite, uh, do they have any sort of, I don't know, strange belief systems that have ever, you know, surfaced uh, rituals even that they may do? Um, you mean contemporary society? Yeah, you know, you have like your fraternities, like skull and bones and things like that, where you hear a lot of things, but we don't know anything for certain. So you just wonder to what level these people are in and to what levels they'll do things, you know what I mean? To yeah, it's not it's not something I've looked into in a lot of detail. But um, if you're in Washington D.C., you should go visit the Scottish Rite Temple of the Masonic Order and look at all the all, look at all all the people that were members of that. The Scottish the Masonic Order was basically a modern kind of secret society. Um, they claim to have esoteric knowledge and things like that. But look at that. It's a it's an incredible building. And look at the roster of vice presidents and CEOs and uh, politicians and astronauts and major, major figures in 
uh, National Society. Look at the roster of members that belong to that. They've got their pictures up on the walls. Give you creep vibes? <laughs> no, it doesn't give me creeps these days, but I, they're not sacrificing anybody anymore. <laughs> that we know of. Yeah, that we know of. <laughs> may have... Uh, May have supporters that they throw under the wheel sometimes of the bus. <laughs> yeah, you just you wonder about that. You know, that's that kind of the um, again going back to that thread and his other threads like it that I've seen on Twitter in regards to your book. <laughs> essentially, trying to understand modern power structure because it's it's been in place before. There've been other ancient cultures that have used the same tricks, yeah. bag of tricks, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's by. That's what that's what I would say. Yes. Are there any other like other than the Masons, Masonic? Are there any other that that you have taken note of that are sort of modern, where all of these CEOs are connected to it and things like that, where and presidents? Well, there, and... There, yeah, there's occasional uh, reports of uh, you know some similar kinds of organizations, but um, you know I don't know how serious they are about having claims to esoteric knowledge um you know i don't know it seems to me it might be more of a more of a, just a social kind of thing but there was the hellfire club in in london in you know the ben franklin was in that one wasn't he yeah <laughs> um, it was in a cave wasn't it they had a cave yeah yeah that's right <clears throat> so that's uh that's one sort of modern example um but if there's anything today, you know, that was the 19th, 18th century. Um, if there's anything today, you know, there might be. I'm just not, I haven't been uh, privy, privy to uh, any of the esoteric that's going on that might be real claims to esoteric knowledge. But Well, just... Forewarned, you may be asked about this in the future now that your book is making its way around <laughs> okay. Twitter. The whole parapolitics <laughs> angle, trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, like, you know, wars and things like that, they very rarely, if ever, are what they present them to be to us as to why we're getting into a conflict somewhere. So you can't yeah, believe well, a word that they're saying, right? Well, there's no lack of them today, that's for sure. Do they see that as some sort of a ritual? I mean, the the, the elite they never send their children off, right? So <laughs> to the to the battle. That's right. Well, uh, New Guinea used to have uh, what were called the ritual wars, and in some respects, very much like uh, some of the contemporary wars. Um, and they'd go on for for months, and people would have to prepare. You know, there's all prearranged. Um, and uh, people would prepare huge amounts of wealth and food for for years before they started these wars, and they'd go on for months and sometimes years. Um, and it was all about, uh, you know, um, it's hard to tell what they were about, but it was about to... Um, exchanging wealth mainly you know for war payments for people that were injured or people that got killed 
it was mainly for show. People got together to show off all their welts and their. Um, yeah, Polly Wiesner has uh, some interesting uh, uh, accounts of these. So it was more like a potlatch, you know. It was more like a a huge event to to exchange wealth and to make social arrangements and yeah, just. I don't know. It's very, it's uh, something I need to look into more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very odd. And, you know, like I said, you can't really take what they're saying at face value. So yeah, uh, for the justification for any of these things, at least I don't think that way anyway. It's yeah. Well, the ritual wars in New Guinea were definitely not for conquering anybody or for, for winning a war. It was just, you know, it was all the payments that were involved in in getting things ready and and compensating people and for yeah, just yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if you don't mind, can can I just change gears here for a second? Just take sure. us on a different road, perhaps. You're an archaeologist, and I just want to get your thoughts. You know, Graham Hancock's been making the rounds lately with his theories and his what some people call pseudo archaeology. What are your opinions about that area and all that stuff i'm not sure um i haven't followed the uh some of the more outlandish claims very carefully uh, can you give me examples there's a lot of like past civilizations that were highly advanced that it, i'll, I'll throw it out uh, atlantis i'll just throw i'm go. gonna throw it out there real quick atlantis perfect example sorry we, I, okay. we have to do it okay well no that's fine uh yeah so there's no geological or physical evidence for anything in the Atlantic Ocean that would correspond to Atlantis. But uh, Sarah, you know, in the Aegean does fit pretty nicely. And as there's a great film out, that's just called Atlantis. And so Akrotiri is, uh, you know, the islands and it, uh, the description of, from Plato, which is really the only source. Yeah, it's not of a Stone Age society 10,000 years ago. It's of a Bronze Age society. Uh, and so they point out in the film that, uh, you know, if you screwed up on the decimal point, instead of, you know, 10,000 years ago, if it was 1,000 years ago from when Plato was writing, yeah, everything fits in terms of the description of the society, in terms of the events on Thera, the collapse of the civilization, the volcanic eruption, the the nature of the civilization. You know, there's so many details that fit into Plato's description that uh, and the, the huge tidal waves that uh, created havoc all over the Mediterranean, uh, the the mud, the ash that clogged the the ocean navigational routes for years after the eruption uh, is just such a catastrophic event. It's hard to believe that it could have been forgotten about by anybody and it must have appeared in some sort of myth. And the story of Atlantis is the best fit. I'm so excited to hear you say that. Yeah. No, it's a, <laughs> it's a great film. It's a great film. You know, you normally throw out Atlantis and people are like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was a very promising answer, a very promising yeah. response. So I appreciate it. 
Sure. Because I'm an Atlantis nut. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you got a lot to deal with so if you're going to go and look at Terra and, and Akrotiri. Yeah. I will be looking into that. So I guess... You want to go ahead and start uh, wrapping this up a little bit? We've taken a lot of your time as it is. Can I ask two very basic, some may say dumb questions? Sure. To an archaeologist. It's not every day you get to talk to an archaeologist. This, one's, this one is from my brother. He specifically requested me to ask this. How do you know when you're digging, right? When you're, out, you're on a site, how do you know when to stop using the shovel and switch to the brush so you don't break stuff? Well, if you're not finding anything, you use the shovel. It's that simple. <laughs> yeah, and it depends on uh, what kind of archaeology you're doing too. If you if you're dealing with uh, you know building collapse or something like that in a in an urban center, you, you probably got a lot of of collapse to go through, and before you hit the living floor, so you could go through that with a shovel, and then once you get the first uh, indication that you've hit you know darker sediments or a living floor it's uh it's somewhat different then yeah you stop and you use a a trowel or it's, it's just basically common sense yeah okay okay i didn't want to say that so i'm glad you you said that so <laughs> okay uh has any archaeologist ever in the history of archaeology triggered a booby trap, or is that pure movie nonsense? I don't know of one. Okay. But, you know, I don't deal with uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, advanced civilizations that could have created booby traps very well. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I don't know of any situations. There have been archaeologists that have been killed um, in the field by, uh, by pot hunters, Basically, uh, because pot hunters are, you know, getting illegal treasures and selling them on the on the art markets and things like that, and they don't want anybody turning them into the authorities. So, they, yeah, sometimes get killed that way. Well, thank you for humoring me with those two questions. Those are special requests. So, no problem. Yeah, so I guess we can uh, go ahead and call it an episode here and. Greatly appreciate you coming on and talking to us. That was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for your interest in all these things. Absolutely. I think yeah. I have many more questions still. So, <laughs> well, I've still got a lot of questions too, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> ones I need to find the answers to somehow eventually. Somebody needs to find answers to. <laughs> okay, and we're back. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Brian Hayden. Yeah, I know I sure did, especially my hard-hitting journalistic brass tack questions. questions. I hope we get to talk to him again sometime and uh, go further in detail in some of these things. This was, again, our first uh, time talking with him, first interview. So, you know, we just sort of bounced around uh, to a lot of different subjects. And uh, honestly, I didn't want to keep him forever. So we were, what, about an hour and a half? So Yeah, somewhere I didn't want to go much, much beyond that. Yeah, for a first interview, but yeah. I think all in all, we did a pretty good job. Yeah, I feel good about it. I mean, like like we said in the intro, he's a real deal guy. Yeah, this isn't just some Yahoo. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm proud of us. 
And I'm proud of you <laughs> for making this happen. Yeah, well. Even though it put me through hell. It's a team effort. It's a team effort. It's always a team effort. That's true. All right, so I guess that concludes this episode of the program. Yeah. I got nothing else. I don't either. And the fact that we're going to try to get more interviews and talk to more professionals, more experts. We'll see. Uh, we, we'll see, all right. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's that. We'll, uh, I guess I'll go through the whole stupid little stuff here. Yeah. Just, you know, get us on all the places you go to get your stuff. Uh, gmail.com. If you have questions or concerns. Yeah. Anything at all. Instagram, Tabivex Podcast. Right. X, Twitter, whatever. Yep. Tabivex Podcast. Tabivex.com for everything all in one convenient location. Shoot us a message. All right. Uh, we will see you next time. See ya. Bye.